I'm Judge Rosemary Aquilina, 30th Circuit Court Judge, Ingham County, that's Lansing, Michigan. I'm also a mother of five, an author, a law professor, and I have a cooking column in Scene Magazine. I wear my labels with pride um, more than distraught. Whatever the label is, a good one, you know, you can honor it. Like, I don't mind the Barracuda. There are bad labels too, but for me, it's okay, I'll show you, I can do better than that. And I do, and I have. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Judge Rosemary Aquilina entered the national spotlight when she presided over the much-publicized Larry Nasser sexual abuse case, giving a voice to the countless gymnasts whom Nasser abused. Today, by using her platform to raise awareness about sexual assault, she continues to empower survivors to speak their truths. So, Judge, growing up, you thought your grandparents were your parents. Would you tell us about that? Sure. So my grandparents emigrated from Malta to the United States with their five children, four of whom were adults, and one of those were my father, who joined the military, and he was in the Army. And after he served, he went to the medical school on the GI Bill in Germany met my mother in a train, they were married a year later, I was born, then my brother was born 11 months and two days later. In medical school, it's very tough, my mother's working, and he found it difficult to study with two crying babies. So my mother, my brother, and I emigrated to Detroit to live with my grandparents. My grandfather was working, but he had the first shift, and I would wake up very early with him, and he'd be home around 2, 2.30. And I spent all day with my grandmother because my mother worked downtown. Now, fast forward to I'm five years old, and during this time, I've been calling my grandparents, Nunu and Nana. My uncle, who was their youngest, was calling them mom and dad. I equated Nunu and Nana, which means grandmother and grandfather in Maltese, to mom and dad. My father comes back from medical school. I had seen him just a handful of times, and he packs us up and moves us. I felt kidnapped. No one explained to me hey, this is your mom and dad. We're leaving grandparents. We're the family unit. And I've always felt kidnapped. My parents don't agree with that. But here's the point. Explain to children. doesn't matter what it is or how complex. You can use language so they understand. Maybe I was a stupid child, but I went with the actions. I didn't feel stupid. I felt left out, not included, and I felt stolen. And that's a feeling that has stayed with me. I will be 61 tomorrow, actually, and it stayed with me all these years. So you talked about not being always really liked because you're outspoken. And so I'm wondering if you ever feel some sort of sense of isolation because of that. I do. I don't feel that I have very many friends because... If you ask me if I like your hairstyle or your dress or your boyfriend, I will tell you what I think. And people don't want to hear what you think. They want to hear what they think. And I'm just not that yes person. So it causes a lot of people I would think would be my friends to walk away. And that's fine with me. I would rather be honest any day of the week and have a friend or two than a whole lot of yes people. 
You've been dubbed Barracuda Aquilino. What do you think of that? I think it's terrific. I think that it really helped me stand out in the military, and it showed that I was a troublemaker there, too, that when I cross-examined someone, it wasn't anything about rank. It was about doing my job and getting at the truth, which is what cross-examination does. And it was during cross-examination of commanders that another commander dubbed me the Barracuda and that no one wants to be cross-examined by me, and it just stuck. (laughs) What do you say to other women who have been labeled? It depends on the label, but I wear my labels with pride um, more than distraught because whatever the label is, a good one, you know, you can honor it. Like, I don't mind the Barracuda. There are bad labels, too, but for me, it's, okay, I'll show you I can do better than that, and I do, and I have. So you can call me what you want, but I'm going to follow my moral compass and always do the right thing, and the label will be washed away. You had kids at 52, twins through IVF as a single mom. Did you have any concerns about having kids later in life? None. I met with my doctor. This was not something that was a whim. I met with my doctor. He ran my numbers actually three times, and I confronted him and said, why do you keep doing this? Do I have cancer? And he laughed and said, no, your numbers are so good. You can have kids until you're 70. I said, well, I don't want to do that. How about today? He said, well, you have the numbers of a 23-year-old. You certainly can have children. So we went through with the IVF. But I also considered longevity, which we have in my family, and the fact that I really have a terrific family, parents, uh, siblings, uh, children, who would also be there in the event that God took me. So I didn't do this blindly. I want the children to have a good life, but I felt like I was missing children. You're not allowed to speak about the Nasser case because it's on appeal. But from your years as a judge, how come so many sexual assaults go unreported? Well, in terms of the Nasser case, it's on appeal. There's still a couple of issues, and I can talk about limited things. Uh, I can talk about things that I talked about on the bench, but I think that we're really moved past that. I think your question is a good one about why don't women report? Why don't boys report? Well, first of all, some of the questions that are asked, why were you there? What were you wearing? Why were you out at night? How much did you have to drink? Those are blaming questions and immediately shut down victims. And victims don't want that. They need to be supported. They need to be believed. They need to have a safe place. And then, of course, the legal system is brutal. They have to be in court. They have to testify. Uh, Their body parts may be on a screen in front of a jury. And many women and boys and men and girls do not want that. And, of course, for men and boys, it's very difficult to report because men are supposed to be the strong ones, not the weak ones. So for a man or a boy to come forward, our culture has made it absolutely difficult for them to report. So very few men report. And it's also the same with women, but at a lesser degree, they report probably six times more than men, but we need to really honor victims and take action, and we're not there yet. What do you say to victims who haven't been believed? I believe you. You matter. Let's tell your story. I'm sorry this happened to you, but you have nothing to be blamed for. The blame solely lies with your predator, and take time to heal because everybody heals in their own time, and I think victims put it upon themselves to heal very quickly, and yes, they can get over it because other people tell them they can, That's not true. They need to take all the time they need and heal and figure out things they can do for themselves so that they feel like they matter, and including surrounding themselves with people who believe in them, not people who continue to shame and blame them. 
You know, you wouldn't feel like that if you weren't out that night. That's really victim blaming and they get re-victimized constantly. So they really need to set up a network of support people and places. And as a society, we need to take some of that responsibility. We need to change our responsing. We need to take care of victims so that they thrive and they survive very well. Some people were really surprised that some parents didn't know that their kids were being abused and wonder how could that happen. So what do you say to them? Well, you have to listen to the testimony of the girls. And there's, in all of these cases where there's multiple victims, you will see this pattern of grooming, and that's really what happened. So no one questioned, and parents were in the room, and what happened were was the girls were placed in big shorts, there was a blanket pulled over them or a sheet on the examination table pulled over them, and towels and other things obstructed the parents' view. So as this horrific um, act was done on them, they would look at their parents, and the parents would smile because the parents didn't know. And that smile meant permission. I know what's going on. So there was a miscommunication because they didn't verbalize, and the girls were not taught to question a doctor. They were not taught to say, hey, I want to know everything you're doing before you do it. That all has to change. The parents are not to blame here. The defendant is solely to blame for his vile acts, but he was a predator who groomed people into believing what he did was medical. How did you not reach over the bench and just punch him? (laughs) Well, first of all, there's a lot of people in my courtroom that I wonder why I don't do that, but I can't do that. and. I'm there for justice, to be fair and impartial, but also in that moment, a plea, he's already said he was guilty. And so in that moment, it's really about what happens at sentencing and can we rehabilitate him? And my answer was no after hearing all of that and reading his letter. And it's also about the victims. He cannot provide restitution financially. He just doesn't have it. Michigan State did, but he doesn't. But the form of restitution they were entitled to was for each of them to say, I'm mad at you and this is what you did. That catapulted their healing tremendously. They faced him, this evil thing that happened to them. They faced that. It was all there. And then they were released of it and they could start their healing. So it was... It's always the right thing to do. I've done that for 15 years with all cases. When there's a defendant who is worthy of being rehabilitated, we put them on uh, probation or maybe they're on parole, but I've asked people to come back, defendants to come back, show me the great things they've done, not let the crime define them. And they come back and they say, I did this. Here's the healthy baby. I'm off drugs. Here's my coin from AA. Here's my employment that I've had for three years now. I did this because of you. Well, ultimately, they did it because they finally realized they were ma- they mattered and could do it. But what catapulted them into doing better things was I told them they also matter. And they came back and they said, you were the first person in my life that told me I mattered. Imagine being told that as a judge, a human being, an adult didn't know they mattered. So defendants need to know they matter. Victims need to know they matter. And healing should start in the courtroom. How do you get the courage to look that kind of evil in the eye? 
it comes from saying you are not winning, we are winning, the good side is winning. And by locking you away, we're protecting society and those victims that you created will now have a sense of peace. And I think that's empowering. It's really about empowerment. How is letting the victims speak? How does that help them grow? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. So a victim speaks and they have been rummaging all of whatever happened to them in their mind and they feel tremendously guilty because that's really our society. How could you be there? How could you do this? How did you not know? And they finally get to ask questions and to say, how dare you do this to me? And when they release that, that pain, they can finally say, I've given all this to him and they can look at healing and they can look at the fact that someone believed them, someone listened and someone in power, that's the power of the robe, it's the magical robe. And they really feel like I matter. And not only was I believed, but geez, he's going away a long time, I'm now safe. They need to feel safe that they matter, that they're believed. And then they can say, now I matter enough to heal. I'm not going to commit suicide. I'm going to stop cutting. I'm going to therapy. I don't want to be bulimic or anorexic anymore. I want to be a whole person because now they're leaving all that garbage that the predator gave them. They're leaving it right back with them in the courtroom and they're free. Coming up, Judge Aquilina explains how women can embolden themselves by speaking truth to power. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. What advice would you give to women who want to speak up to a powerful man but are afraid to? You're never wrong to speak your truth, and if you can't speak directly at him, you can speak to someone who can take action. So it depends on the situation, but certainly uh, always using your voice is a good thing, but some people don't feel empowered to do that. It takes time so they can stand with someone. They can go to law enforcement. They can go to a trusted teacher or a family member who can stand with them or who could be their voice. Once that empowerment stops, it's catchy. It's like a fire. And once it starts, it doesn't stop. So they just need something to ignite it. If it's another person that stands up with them, that's good. They don't have to stand alone and they need to know that. What have you learned from being in the spotlight? I've learned that the justice system is broken and it needs to be fixed. I've learned that law enforcement hasn't listened, that judges have not been listening, that we need to start over, that if one person would have listened and believed 30 years ago, this case would not be mine. Our system's broken. Can you just elaborate on what you mean by that? Sure. Um, This case ends up with, I don't know what the number's at now, 505 who've come forward. I suspect there's more, 156 testified in front of me. uh, That was 156 sister survivors. I let 190, I'm sorry, 169 testify in front of me, totally. If somebody would have listened with the first complaint, we would not have had 505 plus victims. All it takes is someone to listen, believe, and take action. 
and that's where we're broken. And for other cases, I've always for 15 years listened to all the victims. Because victim, I don't define by just the pled count. I define it by anybody who is touched by the crime. And I would like to see them legislate that if other judges aren't doing that. I never knew what I was doing was unique, and I'm surprised by that. But I can tell you I've heard from thousands of people around the world, and watching that, uh, they felt empowered. We need more of that. Our system is absolutely broken if the justice system leaves people broken. Some people have said and criticized that a victim-centered approach turns courts into therapy centers. And so I'm just wondering what you think of that. I'm not a therapist. I'm someone who's there to listen, just like the police, just like uh, the doctor, just like the mother. I'm there to listen because it's not, they're not just talking to me. It's a public courtroom. They're saying publicly to the public, I have been hurt and he did it. And it's their time. It's, I only borrow the courtroom. Whatever you need to do in the courtroom, it's your right to do that. I'm not acting as a therapist. I am allowing someone to speak in their public courtroom for their healing and so that we can do justice. Do you think there should be more camera access in the courtrooms? Absolutely. I think it's appalling that media has to ask permission to be in the courtroom. It's clearly the print media does not, but the cameras do. And I don't know why it's the people's courtroom. And if you go into the legislature, there are boxes. Every single session is taped and the media is there. And I think that ought to happen in the courtroom. And I don't think that it has I mean, people will say, that's because you want to be on camera. It's got nothing to do with me wanting to be on camera. I worked in the legislature for 10 years, and the media was just really wallpaper. But they reported accurately, and they did a really good job. And I find that's true in my courtroom as well. When the media is there, they do a really good job. More importantly, they're the watchdogs. And the newspapers simply don't report everything because they don't have enough space. But between all the media, if they were there, we would at least know what's going on in our community. It's the people's right to know. Why are we hiding? People don't come to court. They're afraid of it. The media would open it up and would open up that platform for the community to know what's going on in their community in an unbiased way because the media has that responsibility to report both sides and what they see. And I think that it would be a positive change in our society overall. What do you think of the people who call you a hero? I think I'm an accidental hero. I didn't do this to be a hero or to make history or to do any of those things. I did it because I do it every day and because I believe it's the right thing to do and because I see it work in every case. How has your life changed since all the media attention? I can't make it through the grocery store without people stopping me. I have a lot of uh, more attention. I have a lot of requests to speak. Um, I'm more known, but I go to work every day. I still teach. I see my kids. I cook every day. So in some cases, uh, in some aspects, I should say it's very much the same. I've had other high-profile cases, and I just um, keep doing my life. And you're a writer, so are you going to write a book about this? I don't, it's really the girl's story. I think my book will be about how did I get to this place to understand that we need to give people a voice where others have not understood that. But really, in terms of the Nasser case, it's the girl's story. I'm just a tiny little piece who gave them a platform to speak. What's the best personal finance advice you've ever heard? That's a tough one. I, I think the best piece of advice I've heard is to only buy what you need and save a percentage of 
every paycheck, every dollar that you make, save something because there's always going to be a hole in your pocket where, you, where you'll need to spend. And then for emergencies, you'll have money. And I think I've tried to manage my life that way. I'm still not close enough to retire, but I'm getting there. Time now for your secrets. I'm Judge Rosemary Aquilina, and my money secret is that every time you get a raise, make sure you put a percentage of it in your retirement so you can retire well. You will not miss it. Be sure to check out our ebook based on the Secrets podcast. WSJ subscribers can download their copy of Resilience How 20 Ambitious Women Use Obstacles to Fuel Their Success for free on WSJ.com today. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos with special help from J.R. Whalen. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.